Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Karate Kid movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Karate Kid Part 2. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan. So it had only been about two years since the first film came out. And if you haven't listened to the first installment, then definitely go back and listen to that because it does affect some plot points here in the second film. So you don't really want those spoiled for you. But nevertheless, a lot of the same people are back. Um, Alvinson's back directing, um, Pat Morita, uh, Daniel LaRusso is played by the same guy. Elizabeth Shue did not come back, though, to play Allie, so not everybody. Yeah, the, pretty much all the main people are here to stay, that being Mr. Miyagi is coming back, Daniel's coming back, director is back, same writer, same composer, it's a couple of the same producers are back. So this is very much a, it, it almost feels like they rolled right into this movie not long after the first one came out. Um, and started production on this one. So, yeah, pretty much everybody else who was attached to the first one is returning for this one as well. Yeah, it even has this uh, same writer. Um, I know we're not getting into the plot just yet, but it does also kind of have the recap at the beginning of this movie to kind of catch uh, people back up in case they missed it, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> interesting product of its time. Right. So it's actually kind of interesting um, because this movie did get a Oscar and a Golden Globe for the song that plays during the credits. Mm-hmm. Now, it didn't win the Oscar, but it did win the Golden Globe um, for its song. It, it lost the Oscar to Top Gun's Take My Breath Away, oh. but it did win the Golden Globe for The Glory of Love, which is, again, the song that plays during the credits. You know, I'll be honest, Alan, I didn't stick around for the credits to listen to the song. I missed it. I I did listen to the song outside of the movie. It's an 80s rock ballad. I, I wasn't a fan of it, but it did get a Golden Globe and an Oscar, so it somebody liked it. I mean, do they play it during the movie at all? Oh, I know they play during the credits. I think they play it during one of the montages, but I think it's just the credits. You know, if it's what I'm thinking it is, then... I remember not liking it from what I'm from what I'm remembering. Mm-hmm. Well, either way, uh, this movie was released June twentieth, nineteen eighty six. Um, budget of thirteen million, so it it's got a rising upped. budget. Yeah, which it doesn't surprise us because of how well the last film did gross grossing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it almost made made back its money in its first week. Opening weekend, $12.7 million. Yeah, that's a much bigger deal than last time with the measly $5 million. Right, exactly. So there aren't any foreign markets here, but uh, domestically overall it made $115.1 million, which is adjusted for about $282.6 million in today's money, uh, which is also its worldwide total. 
because again, there was no foreign markets that were uh, at least recorded. So 115.1 million or 286, 282.6 million uh, adjusted. So it did technically really well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for a budget of 13 million, like you said, engrossing 115, it did very well. And it did even better than the first film. We talked about this, and maybe it just happens a lot in the 80s. But we talked about this with um, Rambo First Blood Part 2, where Mm -hmm. the second film just did crazy numbers at the box office, much better than the first movie. And I think from what I understand is that this movie had come out on very early VHS uh, mediums and it was had gained traction and popularity. So, of course, you wanted to be there to see the sequel since the the even though it had been two years, they were really capitalizing off of the success of the first one. Yeah, and I would say, yeah, definitely the success from the first one, which you know what it did okay in the box office. It mostly stayed around the fourth and fifth place in terms of box office placement. Yeah. Um, it did okay, but clearly, you know, it had uh, an audience to it and it did even better with its sequel coming out in 1986. So you said it did gross $12 million. Does that mean it was number one? Where did it fall? Because last time it opened at number five. Right. So this is kind of interesting because um, it actually stayed number one for the first four weeks after it came out. Wow. So for a whole month, it was number one at the box office. Yeah, pretty much. So it came out. um, It came out, like I said, June 20th, 1986, went up against uh, the number two spot, Legal Eagles, which was released in that week. Back to School was number three, which had been in for two weeks. Top Gun was number four, which had been in for six weeks. And surprisingly, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was at number five, but it had been out for two weeks. Um, Ooh. Which is interesting. I I didn't realize it was, it tanked so low in the box office placement. I didn't realize that either. Um, Yeah, so Ferris Bueller was a big John Hughes film that did come out that year. Um, also this was the year aliens came out another popular sequel. That's right. That's right. Um, David Lynch, definitely not one for kids. Blue velvet also yes. came out. Very not for kids. I would also say one of the ultimate coming of age films stand by me, mm-hmm. uh, was this year. Also the fly Manhunter, which we reviewed. Yep. Long time ago. Uh, Howard, the duck maximum overdrive. Oh, we watched that. We watched together. it. We didn't review it, but we watched it together. Yeah. Oh. And uh, Star Trek 4, which is funny because Star Trek 3 came out two years prior and we have reviewed Star Trek 4. That's right. Uh, best picture was Platoon. That's right. So, yeah, uh, some pretty, I would say a lot of, definitely a lot of pictures that have kind of remained in the test of time, like especially Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which oh, I know yeah. is a big, a big deal. Um, Top Gun, Platoon, et cetera, et cetera. So, Continue on with continuing on with this box office placement. It's nothing really too crazy for the next three weeks because it's just back to school. Legal Eagles in two and three. Um, Ruthless people did come out in the second week, um, but came out number four, but ended up going back up to the number two spot. But that didn't affect Karate Kid. Aliens was the thing to push it down to number two in its fifth week. When that came out, it pushed down Karate Kid Part Two into the number two spot. But it looks like it only pushed it down by four and a half million dollars, maybe. Yeah, I guess it's really close. That's yeah. surprising to me. 
Um, I did notice that in Karate Kid's second week, it did go up against Labyrinth, Jim Henson's film, mm-hmm. which debuted at number eight, which is pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so. In terms of box office placement, it did fairly well. I mean, being at number one for four weeks is, you know, nothing to sneeze at. No, and that's incredible. But I'm, it's kind of weird. It seems like all the blockbusters for that summer had to come out except for um, Aliens, as you said, was kind of coming mm-hmm. out there at the end of July. But Top Gun and a number of others had already been out. But what what the heck was going on in July for four weeks? I, I mean, know. of course, Karate Kid reigns supreme. Who's ever heard of ruthless people and running scared? And I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. It's it was surprising to me that it went on for four weeks with uh, seems to be little competition. Wow. So let's get into scores. Um, a bit lower than last time. It looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Karate Kid Part 2 at IMDb has it at a straight, a straight 6.0. That's way bow. lower because the last one yeah. was 7.2. Yeah, it's a whole point, 1.2 points lower. That's a big deal. Yeah, that, that is a big drop. <laughs> um, Metascore to 55, so a little bit lower than last time, but definitely at this point within the, within the yellow. Yeah. Rotten Tomatoes, 42% critic score, 51% audience score. Not, not great. <laughs> so the cinema score for this is an A minus. That's that's not bad. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you say letterboxed? Uh, that one's next. I got that at a 2.9. Oh. So that one's okay. That one's. Uh, sure. Well, okay. <laughs> in the sense of it's about in line with everything else, I guess. I mean, it's kind of for letterbox, kind of like straight up the middle, I guess a yeah. 2.5 would be straight up the middle, but, and it, it, if your movie is a 2.5 on letterbox, then you failed. Yeah. Um, but I mean, le- the first one was a 3.6. So you can see the scores have dropped drastically, especially rotten tomatoes. Um, interestingly enough, um, Metacritic people kind of thought this movie was, Kind of around the same caliber as the first, slightly less, though. Yeah, that is the standout here, I guess. I mean, it's higher than I would expect, but it's still, you know, within the the not-so-great range. And, you know, I think the cinema score tells us that when audiences saw this in the summer of July 1986, it reigned supreme for the whole whole month. They gave it an A-. minus. It was uh, pretty well-received, but clearly over time... With a six on IMDb, a very divisive uh, Rotten Tomatoes audience score. This movie has not fared well at all with um, audiences over over these past few decades. Yeah, and I can attest to that because I had no idea that Karate Kid Part 2 existed until I was getting prepared for this retrospective. And I was looking up all the films that were in the that were within the Karate Kid retrospective. And I was like, oh, they did a part two and three. This is a trilogy. I don't know if many people know that this is actually a trilogy. <laughs> so I I was never really clear on how many films there were. All I knew was there was this one, the Hillary Swank one. And then, mm-hmm. of course, I knew they remade it with Jaden Smith, but I always forget about that movie because I've never yep. seen it. And yeah, there is a part two and a part three. It does seem a little strange, but at the same time, this movie was doing 
incredibly well at the box office and it did even better than last time. So it's no surprise we're getting a third one. Right. But so Alan, it's 1986. You're realizing they're going to make another Karate Kid movie. Are you, let's say you did go back and rewatch the first one, maybe. Are you going to go see this sequel? Or maybe, 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 okay, maybe you didn't see the first one. Are you going to okay. give the sequel a chance just based on the trailer? Maybe. <laughs> okay, same answer. <laughs> um, because, I mean, okay, the trailer for this is, does not give a whole lot away. Um, if I hadn't seen the original movie, maybe <laughs> because <laughs> um, I don't know. It doesn't really tell me a whole lot about the movie, which is about the movie, which is fine. But I think my problem is um, the first one. I think I noted it didn't seem a whole very interesting to me if I were at this age looking at it. Um, now, if I had gone into with the context of the first movie, maybe. <laughs> Because uh, I don't know, I, like I noted with the last movie, it wasn't I wasn't too intrigued by it um, when it was all said and done. So I don't know where they would go from here. They're going to a new area, but uh, that's about all I know. It seems in, so, in some ways kind of a repeat of last time. Yeah, absolutely not. This trailer is not going to get me into the theater opening weekend or at all. Um, I think the only thing that would maybe get me into the theater was if I had the knowledge, which I maybe not be very easy in 86, knowing this film was number one at the box office for four weeks in a row would probably get me to go see it. But based upon this trailer, it looks cheesy and features little of new interest. So no, I'm not going to go see it. I will say this. I don't think the trailer is that bad, but mm. because of how... No, much I didn't really care for the first one. I don't think I'd be very interested in it. Well, listeners, we do also have timestamps in the description below. So if you don't want to know the plot of Karate Kid 2, or if you just want to jump into our thoughts, or even just our scores, then that's available for you. Check out the timestamps so you can easily jump ahead. And then also, if you just take a minute to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, that would be super helpful. It does help us get recommended to other listeners over there, and it also helps us within the rankings to be found by more people. And also, there's a triple bonus to be involved as well with a certain number of ratings on uh, Apple Podcasts, then we can be verified as reviewers on Rotten Tomatoes. So that would be great also just to help other people see that. And we don't have to just report on the Rotten Tomato scores. We can influence them as well. Right. So if you just take a minute to go give us a five-star rating, that is a great way. That really does help us, and we really appreciate that. So if you haven't seen The Karate Kid Part 2 and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. It is currently on Netflix. If you have a Netflix subscription, go ahead and watch it and come back and click play here on the podcast so we can talk about all of the spoilery details. After winning the tournament, Daniel LaRusso, played reprised by Ralph Macchio, and teacher slash sensei Mr. Miyagi, reprised by Pat Mortia, are headed to leave when they see Sensei Kreese, reprised by Martin Cove, put one of his students, Johnny, reprised by William Zabka, in a chokehold, <laughs> fueled by his rage after losing the tournament. Mr. Miyagi incapacitates Reese and goes to strike him down, but instead touches his nose in comedic effect. Six months after this, Daniel returns from a frustrating prom night. Owie wrecked Daniel's car and then dumped him for a UCLA football player. 
But Mr. Miyagi puts Daniel in a better mood when he has him start construction on Daniel's new room attached to Mr. Miyagi's house. Mr. Miyagi's happiness is short-lived, however, because a letter arrives for him sent by his old flame, Yuki, played by Nobi McCarthy, on his father's worsening condition. Mr. Miyagi and Daniel hop on a plane to Okinawa. Daniel questions why he left Okinawa in the first place. And come to find out, Mr. Miyagi was in love with Yuki, and the two developed a pretty strong relationship. But then Yuki's parents arranged a marriage with her and Sato, um, Miyagi's best friend at the time, played by Sani. Oh, no. Sani <laughs> Kamikona. I'm so sorry. <laughs> at the time, Sato had ordered a fight to the death between them, but Miyagi refused and was told to leave his village, never to return. Once Daniel and Miyagi land in Okinawa, they are greeted by Chosen, Sato's top student, played by Yuki Okamoto. Instead of taking them to Miyagi's village, Tomi Village, he takes them to see Sato, um, who has become more powerful, owning more, more land and turning Okinawa into a more industrialized society. Sato orders them to fight, but Miyagi continues to refuse. Our heroes catch a cab finally to Tomi Village, and Miyagi meets up with his father and caretaker Yuki. She reveals that she never married Sato. Sato re returns to the village to, to hopefully to fight Miyagi again when the pair is called by Miyagi's father. With his dying breath, he tries to get them to shake hands. Sato gives Miyagi three days to mourn before he returns to finish the fight. Inside those three days, Daniel starts a relationship with, Kumi with Kumiko while trying to dodge Chosen, who becomes increasingly obsessed with fighting our main lead. The three days pass, and Sato arrives to settle. Miyagi reluctantly agrees after his town is threatened to be sold if he does not adhere to Sato's request. However, a typhoon rolls in that night. Most of the villagers make it into the bunker except for Sato, whose hut collapses on top of him. Miyagi and Daniel rush out, to, rush out and save him. Daniel returns to save a child who sent out the warning signal of the storm. A now-changed Sato disowns Chosen after he disobeys his orders to aid Daniel. The following morning, Sato arrives to help rebuild the village and opens up the castle to host the Oban Festival. At the festival, Komiko starts dancing for her village. A vengeful Chosen ziplines and captures Komiko, calling for Daniel to fight him to the death. Daniel agrees in the two, du in the two duel. After his crane technique fails him, Daniel risks a new technique he learned from Yagi while staying in Tomi Village, the drum technique. He uses it against Chosen and incapacitates him. Live or die, Daniel asks a now defeated Chosen. Die, he responds. Wrong answer, says Daniel, and comically touches Chosen's nose. Komiko and Daniel embrace as Mr. Miyagi looks on it with a smile and the credits roll. That's a good plot, Alan, because Thanks. there's quite a bit to this movie in mm -hmm. some ways. Yes, uh, very correct. And I was shocked, I guess, this time because the last time we noted that, you know, it's especially in the second half, things begin to just really slow down and it's not moving very fast. And we we're both like eh, trying to keep along with it. But this time around, and I guess I never really felt that. I never really felt like I was, you know, waiting for something to happen. I feel like I was always engaged with something here. I guess that's a positive for me. It's, you know, it, there's something there's something new in almost every minute of the story here. I would agree with that as well. This time around the plot, I would say, is better handled, even in pacing and even in structure of how events are going to play out. In the setup, I think this movie has a pretty good setup. I mean, it's, it's a really obvious setup. It's just pretty much laid out there from the get-go, and you know certain things are going to have to happen. But nevertheless, this movie was kind of interesting that it opened with basically previously on, 
mm-hmm. the Karate Kid, and you do get a replay of some of the best moments. Now, I didn't realize that at first. I thought when Daniel was coming in to watch Miyagi with chopsticks, I thought, oh, are we getting like unseen footage maybe of uh, an extended scene between them or something new? Eh, no, it wasn't, but it did serve to remind us what happened in the last film. And honestly, I think it was a concise just wrap up, just a concise viewing of the first film. That's all I needed. That's what I really liked is I got the first film and the second film all in one. Yeah, and that's kind of <laughs> nice because it also gives us the ending that we were missing from the first movie. That is true. And I was Where was this? <laughs> <laughs> well, they brought back even the judge with the guy with the mustache. Yep, yep. And I thought, did they I wondered if they shot this and they just didn't tack it on because it was too long. I don't know the answer to that. I yeah. don't think so. I think it was planned, but they ended up not going for it for one reason or another. So I did hear that this was actually a part of the original script of the first film, mm-hmm. but uh, it kind of makes sense not to put this in there because we want to just enjoy Daniel's victory, however short-lived it is. But nevertheless, this does a good job of kind of giving Miyagi the spotlight. I think he was really kind of missing in the last movie. And Miyagi always kind of, we, we got to watch him briefly beat up a bunch of kids in skeleton costumes, but this really shows Miyagi's true reserve and ability to fight somebody without even laying a hand on them. So even though this opening is kind of over the top with Kreese choking out Johnny in a parking lot in front of committing assault, potentially battery, uh, definitely going to jail for that. I hope, Mm -hmm. um, even though it is kind of cartoonish, I, I like this opening. It's exciting. Yeah, and it also sets up that, you know, this is going to be, whereas last time it was more focused on Daniel, this time it's focused on Miyagi. Daniel's there, yeah. and he does have a, definitely has a place in the story, but the main focus, I feel, is going to be on Miyagi. Um, I think it, definitely in the second half, I think it kind of goes back and forth between the two of them. But for the most part, when I think of overall, what is uh, Karate Kid Part 2 about? I, th- I say it's about Mr. Miyagi. Um, and you do see this in this opening where he's given the spotlight when Kreese is going to town and trying to choke out his student. <laughs> um, and then, of course, Miyagi comes in and saves it. It kind of shows that it, the focus is going to be on him this time around and not necessarily Daniel like it was last time. And I know that was one of your criticisms for the last film is you just felt like we didn't really get enough of Miyagi or Miyagi really didn't learn very much from yeah. Daniel. But I think. I appreciate what we get from Miyagi this time around is he gets to deal with the death of his father. And then he also has to deal with his best friend who is now his worst enemy. And just kind of the fallout from this kind of life that what could have been we get through Miyagi. So honestly, I find that this more interesting (laughs) Then um, I thought the setup for the last film was interesting. I just didn't feel the payoff was enough. But, you know, if they're going to go in a new direction, this is a pretty smart direction. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting because we kind of get a little bit of what happened um, in the last movie. He did come from Okinawa. Um, He was in the war. He had a wife and his wife and child died in childbirth. Um, But that's really in terms of backstory. That's kind of all that we really got. Right. And so in this one, we get a whole lot more. We get to see, like, you know, where he grew up. We get to see why he left in the first place, you know, all kinds of stuff, which I really ended up enjoying because 
like I said in the last one, the characters in Karate Kid Part One were kind of they're kind of shallow. In this one, I feel like at least with Mr. Miyagi, he's a, a lot more rounded this time around. Where I feel like, and especially there towards the end when um, when Sato increasingly keeps coming to him and say, "You fight me, you fight me now," he keeps saying, "No, no, no." You get to see how he eventually he he's forced to say yes when Sato is willing to. He says, "I'm going to essentially." Just sell all this land, and it, this is all going to be uprooted. Uh, everything here is going to be gone because it'll be owned by somebody else. It, it feels like at that point, Mr. Miyagi has to say yes. He has to go against some of the, the things that he, or I guess what kind of pushed him out of the village in the first place. And he has to eventually um, accept that he has, sometimes you have to fight. Even though um, most of the time he's mostly living a very passive life, there are times where even when you're forced to, you have you have to do something, which kind of becomes like a main theme of the film as well. Yeah, and that also kind of lends itself to this being truly part two in a film. Because earlier in the year when we did the Back to the Future trilogy, we talked about how part two and part three were the same, were one film. It was just too long, so they did cut it in half for two different theatrical releases. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason why I appreciate with this film opening the way that it does, is it does cement this is a continuation, a part of the Karate Kid story. Right. Um, and I do really like that Kreese gets his comeuppance because that's, that was something that was sorely missing in the last film. And it's nice that it comes from Miyagi because we wanted to not just see Daniel and Johnny square off, but we wanted to see Miyagi and Chris do that as well. So that was a great opening. And of course it creates a very much a full circle when Daniel has to fight chosen and he's in the exact same shot where he's about to chop him in the neck, but he, but he doesn't. So the full circle aspect of it is nice as well. Um, Okay, I'll I'll save the whole six months later. Let's brush over everything for the negatives. But um, yeah, and once again, it's a nice closeout for the Cobra Kai, Kai group, which did get the short shrift in the last film. Yeah. Um, something else I liked, I felt like there was some nice cinematography of Japan. And especially for people in the 80s that weren't didn't really have the internet and couldn't look into other worlds as very much i think this was a nice thing to change the locations out of california and into a a new place yeah i agree i i think that they do a pretty good job at kind of showing off like a new area um we get to see okinawa i I think this is actually hawaii's where they filmed but they make it look like you know okinawa (laughs) great um so yeah (laughs) i I do like it because it's outside of you know, what a lot of Americans are used to. It's outside of what Daniel is used to, um, again, <laughs> I guess. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a very pretty movie. I think the last one had a bit better cinematography, but mm. this is by no means an ugly-looking film. No, it looks, I thought, very quite good, actually. I also think the score is much better than last time. Oh, miles better. <laughs> <laughs> I I listened to the score outside of the film because there are moments where I'm like, oh, this is this is pretty good. Yeah, and I yeah. listened to it outside of it. It's there's a lot of re- repetitious um uh I guess songs in there. Uh-huh. But for the most part it it's really really good. I was surprised to see that Karate Kid Part 2 had um a better score than last time. It's not amazing, but no. by all intents and purposes especially compared to last time quite good yeah i i particularly i think one of the scenes where it's showcased the best is where daniel and miyagi 
you can see their silhouettes um, fighting against kind of in their hut over the sea and the score, or I don't know what those were, pan pipes or something or a flute of some kind, but it was played and the music was timed to the movements of them practicing karate. That is probably my favorite part of the film, like my favorite little piece of uh, movie making right there. Yeah. I really loved it. Um, so yeah, there are some solid moments with the score and look of this film as well. I think they did a pretty good job of uh, creating a kind of a hurricane type tsunami. I don't know what it was, a typhoon at the end as well. I think yeah. they did a good job with that production design. Yeah. So I do kind of want to talk about, uh, I guess, this movie versus the last one. I, I briefly mentioned it a second ago, but the kind of one of the bigger um, questions or one of the bigger lessons from the first movie was learning when not to fight. Mm -hmm. um, because it, as we've noted, the, uh, the bullies that always come after Daniel are kind of almost always there and Daniel always feels like he has to fight them. And Mr. Miyagi is like, no, you need to learn when the best moment to fight is. Learn not to fight because karate is used as a self-defense, not necessarily as an attack, right? Even though um, the Cobra Kai are using it as, as an attack, they're not using it the way that it was you know, meant to be used. This time around is different because it's kind of flipped on its head. You know, while Mr. Miyagi's life is more along the lines of him being very, very passive and only fighting out of self-defense, there comes a moment, he's forced actually, especially in the ending, um, to fight Sato. He has to fight Sato in order to save his village, right? And so it's learning, It's and you also kind of get it with Daniel as well. Um, Chosen is almost always there, it seems like. Um, and even though Daniel continues to put him off and put him off, he finally has to, he, he finally is forced to fight Chosen. So I, it's, I also see this as where the last movie was about when learning not to fight. This one I see is more on lines, of, along the lines of learning when to fight. Yeah. And I do love how they really set all of that up in the first film. And mm -hmm. I do feel like they carry that over. It feels consistent into kind of the worldview of Miyagi here in the second film. And he brings up a line pretty early on that I really love, actually, where he tells Daniel, never put passion before principle. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we see both of these characters. Uh, they Daniel kind of struggled throughout the first film with that, but he has matured some more in this next film. And that is something that uh, that's a fantastic lesson. I think everybody can learn as well. And when it does come time for Miyagi to have to fight uh, Sato, Sato is doing it just because he kind of has this bruised ego and wants to reclaim some kind of honor and show he really is better than Miyagi. Miyagi's doing it because he wants to save his village. So he sees it more as a sacrifice. And, uh, you know, Miyagi wouldn't kill Sato, I believe, but Sato probably would kill Miyagi and Miyagi would take that sacrifice. So... All of that kind of building tension throughout it. And then when Miyagi finally does agree to the deal, I think that's a good, a good kind of momentous payoff right there, which we learn about. It feels satisfactory, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is also kind of cool to see that even though, you know, Miyagi could have left Sato for dead um, and they were even told that he died from oh, Chosen, yeah. they decided to run out there and save him anyways. Um, Kind of a, uh, although in, in terms of uh, 
Sato's case, he almost has an instant change in his attitude, but uh, we'll talk about either it. way, it's a nice moment. It's a nice moment, but nevertheless, you're right. It's I love this kind of turn the other cheek mentality that this film proposes. And then until when is the time where you do have to fight and you don't yeah. fight to defend your honor and make it this really kind of self-righteous uh, attitude about the whole thing, but you fight to defend other people. That's why Daniel has to fight Chosen is mm -hmm. to protect the girl. I don't even remember her name. Komiko. Komiko. Okay. So he does have to protect Komiko because Chosen is about to slit her throat open in a super violent gesture. Uh, Chosen is a psycho. I'm just going to throw mm -hmm. that out there. Yeah, I do want to talk about him in a second. But I do, I am curious to know what are your thoughts on Komiko? Because we find out like within the first 10 minutes, um, uh, yeah, it turns out Ali wrecked Daniel's car and then left him for a UCLA football player. Okay, we're going to go there. I'm ready to go there. <laughs> do you have any positive thoughts on Komiko before we get into negative thoughts on Komiko? Let me ask that first. Um, not really, honestly. I feel like she's mostly this unnecessary romance that I feel is mostly forced here into the plot. And I didn't oh, feel interesting. like I didn't feel like there was much of any chemistry between the two of them. That's interesting because I feel almost the complete opposite. Oh. I actually like Komiko like a lot more than I liked Allie because I felt like Allie was almost completely unnecessary in the first one. Yeah, and I know we had that difference in the first one because I really liked Allie and I thought she was a more so natural inclusion than Komiko. Mm -hmm. Okay, but I'm curious to know why you like her because I didn't. And it's not just because she had a thousand flyaway hairs covering her face all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I guess I found the um, the chemistry between uh, Daniel and Komiko something that I could actually latch on to. Um, last time I did not feel that this time I, I feel like it's I feel like I, I feel that there and I feel like also that Komiko as a character just she I feel like she does more in this one too um, she does fight back a little bit more than Aoi did not that Aoi didn't fight back but I felt like her character of Komiko is explored a bit more we also get that scene a little bit later when she I think this is partially why I enjoyed her character more. There's a scene later on where she does the tea ritual, which we see a bit earlier with um, with Miyagi and Yuki, and it kind of is a show. It kind of is a sign yeah. of you know them falling in love, right? Right. Same scene happens here, but this time it's with no dialogue. There's nothing telling us that oh, I love you, kind of a thing. There is that, but not in this scene, right? So it is more of a visual depiction of their relationship than it was them just kind of outright telling you. They, they they do kind of do that a little bit later, but I think that was the scene where I was like, okay, I can jive with their character a little bit more than Allie because it's actually taking the time to visually show me, you know, her affection towards our main lead. It's not perfect, but at least it's there, right? It's not just outright telling us. I think that's why I ended up liking her character a lot more is by the way that she was handled. Well, I guess I feel like Daniel and Allie had more in common, but I feel like these two don't have very much in common because they are from different cultures. I'm not even sure what really gets them together aside from she seems to be the only girl that age in this tiny village and he's there and they're young and they have hormones and they just are, um, is uh, Mr. Miyagi's long lost love, is that her niece? Yeah, that's, uh, so yeah, Long Lost Love is Yuki. 
Yuki's niece is Komiko, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So I just felt like this was more of a fantasy of these two kind of being together. I didn't really see them having any sort of future whatsoever. I thought, and this is something that really did frustrate me is the way they undo a lot of major uh, plot points and developments in the first film by just saying Allie likes some UCLA guy, but maybe she's lying yeah. to him. And I'm like, well, way to just undermine everything you wrote in the first movie. And so maybe you would hate this, Alan, but I would rather see um, Allie go to Japan with Daniel and not have uh, Komiko here. It felt a little too much like Rambo part two, where he has his girlfriend in there with them. But right. um, maybe I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but this whole tea scene between the two of them, I I started to doze. Really? <laughs> I'm, this is interesting. I, I'm actually very interested in this. Alan, Alan's gripped by the TV and I'm putting, the, <laughs> I, it's putting me to sleep. And that's, I don't want to get too negative too quickly here, but mm -hmm. there are, this movie is one of those very quiet films where there's, there's scenes where there's not a lot of dialogue and it's more about the contemplation of life choices and soft music and whatnot. And, um, yeah, it's it's very pretty scene, but it was kind of long and I didn't really understand what was going on anyway. So it was putting me to sleep and I didn't care about those characters anyway. Oh, oh man. See, this is the kind of stuff I love. I love things where it's like <laughs> slow and more thought provoking than uh, than just outright telling you. OK, I'll agree with you on some points. Uh, it It's kind of, you know, whack that these two characters just all of a sudden fall in love within a matter of a couple of days. That I agree with you with. It's not a perfect, it's not a perfect movie by any means. Um, but I think because of how uh, I feel like they make Komiko a bit stronger than Aoi is. They I feel like they develop her a bit more than they did last time. Um, I, I think I ended up liking just the way that her character is in the story more than I did for Aoi's character. I think that overall, yeah, I think she has a. I think she has a, a, even a bit more screen time than Aoi did, which I think was why I ended up kind of jiving with her a bit more is because they, I feel like she had more of a role in the story because not only was she connected to Yuki, who was also um, Miyagi's love interest, but she's also, you know, partially involved with this whole village and it's not really a part, not really attached to Chosen, but has more of an identity all over herself. So I think that's why I ended up liking her character more than I did Aoi's is I felt like she had more to do in the story and had more of an impact on the story than what Aoi did. Because I felt like Aoi was just kind of there. It felt like she was there because there needed to be a relationship angle for Daniel. But outside of that, it felt like it was kind of a week for her to actually being effective of the plot. I will say Kumiko's screen time is better utilized in this film. She's incorporated it into much better than Allie. Allie would disappear for large portions of the plot in the last one, whereas Kumiko does a good job of they found a way to if they're going to bring in a lot of characters. And can we say there's a lot of characters in this movie? Yeah, there are quite a number because we have it, it's uh, there in some ways it's kind of a parallel of the first one of the first movie, but now with um, I guess two extra characters that play a lot heavier roles, and that being Yuki and Komiko. Yeah, and I would say they're actually pretty well utilized because they're matched up really well, and they don't feel like these kind of 
side ventures that are necessary once in a while. Um, so you you brought it up earlier. You just said it, but this is largely a retelling of the first story. I would yeah. say, yeah, it, it very much is. There are some newer things here and there, but for the most part, it's following the structure that the first movie has already laid out for us. And I was kind of surprised insofar as I dare dare I say it, but this almost feels like a remake of the first story, but better structured considering Daniel has a new love interest. Miyagi is actually given more to do in a more interesting way. I would say Miyagi has this adversary that was crease was kind of a little bit of that last time. Um, Chosen is the new Johnny that he's always consistently fighting in the village. Yeah, I would just say everything, even though everything is a strong parallel of the last film, it all is plotted and paced better, I, I would say. Oh, yeah, he's easily much better because I last time we noted that the place, the pacing in that was too slow and there just wasn't enough meat to get us involved, especially in my end. Um, this time around, I feel the complete opposite. I feel like there's at least enough if, it's, if there's not stuff there for for character exploration or th or thematic exploration there's at least something there visually right i think again that's kind of why i was in in tune with this scene with the uh with the tea ritual scene between komiko and daniel um again not perfect but it's something that's i thought i thought that there was enough here for me to actually engage myself within the story then unfortunately last time where i felt like there was just nothing there hardly at all um, so this time I feel like it feels have, I feel like uh, the credit part two has more of an identity, whereas last time it was kind of too open for its own good. Now, were you frustrated at all that Miyagi, who talked about his wife and his child in the last one, that seems to be kind of largely forgotten because now he has realized this other long lost love that he wanted to marry before he ever met his wife. I was a little annoyed by that in some ways because I feel like if they're going to introduce a new lady, then Miyagi should have had more reconciliation with the wife that he lost. Yeah, I agree. The fact that they kind of just drop the wife and child pretty much completely from the last movie, it feels like it's somewhat of a retcon. Um, they don't exactly directly call it out, but it, it feel like that seems to be the case. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily find Yuki all that interesting either. Uh, especially in the second half, she just disappears. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting choice to kind of push that to the wayside and say, oh, well, he had another person that he loved and that being Yuki, who was from the same village, who was going to marry Sato and then say, then Sato wanted to fight and kill Miyagi and then she ended up not marrying him. And anyways, it's kind of a mess, but yeah, it's an interesting choice to go down that route. The one thing that I think this film doesn't probably do as well as the first film is I do feel a lot of the trouble and drama in this film seems manufactured. Oh, interesting. Okay. I feel like it's manufactured for the reason that they come to Japan and Sato has this big beef with Miyagi and Miyagi keeps saying, no, I won't fight you. So that leads to Daniel getting harassed multiple times and they beat They really did vandalize their house and their garden. They're swindling the villagers. I don't know. I almost feel like if Miyagi could 
do do a fight with Saito more early on or something. I understand they're saving that for the climax that we never get. But yeah. um, nevertheless, I feel like Miyagi's causing a lot of this trouble by not fighting Sato and they don't involve the police. And I feel like not a lot is learned from it aside from just getting us angry and wanting us to get Miyagi to say yes to the fight. I guess I can agree with you halfway um, because you're right. These two characters of chosen and Sato just seem to always be around and always seem to pry <laughs> like fight me now. And Miyagi's like, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, that, Sato is not as bad as Chosen. I feel like Chosen, especially when it gets to, I would say the worst or the best example is when they're in the city and they randomly go into a bar and Chosen is there and challenges Daniel to break all six sheets of, of ice. That was a cool scene though. It, it was a fun scene, but it's just like, it's a good example of Chosen is always there. No matter where Daniel goes, Chosen is is always going to come in at some point during the scene and mess with them. And it gets to a point where it's just like, it's almost like clockwork. Like, oh my gosh, he's here again. I feel like he just kind of gets annoying. So I'll agree with you on that part. I feel like Sato and Chosen just show up way too much to a point that they're just annoying, right? However, I do like the aspect of um, it's Miyagi who's the one who's putting himself and his village at danger because he's, he's willing to go along with what he believes in to a point where it's dangerous for everybody else in himself in his, in his own property. Um, and he has to learn that lesson of maybe I, sh maybe I do need to fight in order to, in order to save my village and be honorable to my village. I, I find that to be the interesting part. That part I don't have too much of an issue with, um, where Sato is so over the top that he's going to literally just destroy the village. Um, and Miyagi is like, fine after so long of being pushy finally has to, he has to do it that i like that i like where miyagi's beliefs um that he taught daniel in the first movie are severely challenged to a point where it's hurting others around him that i think is interesting i can kind of see your point where like miyagi's beliefs are beginning to hurt others around him it's just kind of hard for me to reconcile that too much though because to me it feels like chosen is just kind of taking is um sato his uncle yeah yeah okay. he's his top student and he's his uncle right he's taking more of his direction in harassment and you know what uh chosen doesn't know miyagi he doesn't know daniel he's just wanting to be a hothead harasser uh kind of similar to johnny so i wish that sato's infliction we would see that affect Mr. Miyagi a bit more because I feel like Daniel's always getting the brunt end of the stick and Miyagi's always kind of showing up at the end like, hey, cut it out. And they're like, well, you're a coward. They say coward about a thousand times. Yeah, they do. And so I just feel like Daniel's the one that's paying for Miyagi's sins in some way. So you're right. I think that's, that's true. I just wish I saw Miyagi feel that a bit more that he's hurting Daniel once it comes down to the village he finally gets it but nevertheless it does bug me that chosen is just like hey my uncle hates your friend so I'm just going to beat up on you all the time and you're right he does show up way too much these villains are obnoxious and more cartoonish than the last time I would say 
especially Sato's voice. It sounds like a oh. cartoon character. Yeah, that that does get into the cliches of the movie. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do wish that they would have gone more down the route of, well, Daniel was, Daniel was being hurt too. Like they do do that, but there's not really much of like, I guess, an effect from that um, on Miyagi's side. Um, it's more of him on the village, which is fine. But I do wish that they also went down that same route of, well, he's hurting Daniel as well. Um, and I wish he would have done something more about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I see it this way. Because there's more of an emotional attachment to Sato, I'm more willing to go along with, um, I guess, what the movie, how the movie portrays him. He's not perfect. He's very cartoonish. But I wouldn't say they're necessarily... Um, I, w- I would say that they're better than last time because there is that emotional connection between Sato and Mr. Miyagi. It's not perfect. It's very, um, it's a very, it's very weak because, you know, we find out that they're best friends, right? But that's about all that we know of their relationship. Um, so we never really get, that's never really built up to us. It's just told to us that it's, he was his best friend and then he and now he wants to kill him. So at least there's an emotional attachment here. To, with Mr. Miyagi and everything in the story, there's some kind of emotional attachment to it, right? That I'm, I'm, that I can get in with. I just don't think it. It's not perfect. It's by no means anywhere close to perfect. But it is something that I felt with villain wise. I think it they are handled better than last time. I guess the reasons to get Miyagi to agree to the fight. I wish they were more compelling. Aside from ripping up his garden to begin with and then they start to vandalize his house miyagi has no real seemingly material attachments yeah it only comes down to i like when and sato and it's always through pock it's always through proxy yeah. sato says i'll give you three days to mourn but that doesn't mean my nephew can't beat up on your student for a while and make his time in japan a bad one um, so nevertheless, it's, it's usually always through proxy until Sato comes to say, I'm going to tear down the village. I just felt like I needed more involvement with Sato taking away things Mr. Miyagi cared for more about. He cares about Yuki. He cares about Daniel. And I just think there's different ways they probably could have punished those characters that really could have wore away at Mr. Miyagi aside from hacking up his garden, which He's going to leave there in a few days anyway, so who cares? So I guess I was just disappointed that the reasons could have been stronger and not so, I don't know, kiddish in some of those ways, I guess. Yeah, I can agree with you on some of that. And I think that also gets into uh, one of my bigger criticisms of uh, that of the main character of the story, because I mentioned this kind of a second ago. Uh, When it gets to the second... Throughout the whole story, it kind of flip-flops between Miyagi and Daniel as the main character of the story. It doesn't really land on either one of them when the story ends. Um, seems to be Daniel, but this is very much Mr. Miyagi's story. So, I don't know. It, it just seems... It, this, it, the movie seems conflicted on who it wants to choose to be its main character for the story that it's trying to tell. Because the opening, it feels like it's Mr. Miyagi's story. But then the movie ends with Daniel fighting Chosen. So it's hard to say who's really the main character here. Maybe that kind of plays into uh, what you're, the issue that you have. Where, yeah, he, for whatever reason, it's not Sato, you know, calling the... It's not Sato being more involved between him and Miyagi um, and doing things, by, for him, doing things by himself instead of Chosen doing it. Um, maybe if they had 
gone down more that route where Miyagi is being hurt himself, not just the, those around him and things that he has. Uh, be, by Sato's own, uh, by Sato's doing it himself. Maybe they got down that route, maybe that would have cemented uh, Miyagi as being the central main character. Um, I find the main character to be kind of, it depends on the scene almost uh, with this movie. I do feel like that is poor because Miyagi is set up as the main character. He's the one that kind of, after Daniel's done, he gets the victory against Kreese and he's the one going to Japan because of his father's uh, passing. And he's the one that has his nemesis Saito. But nevertheless, this is still the karate kid. So Daniel has to play a pivotal role in it as well. So that's why they have to seemingly remake the first one and give Daniel a love interest and his own nemesis to fight. The only way I guess I can justify Daniel fighting Chosen at the end is it's because it's kind of Miyagi passing on to the next generation the lessons of never put passion before principle. And of course, the um, what do they call it? The I keep wanting to call it the barrel. Oh, the the, the drum technique, the, the, the drum, drum technique. Right. Yep. That's the new wax on wax off, I guess, where mm -hmm. it's not really about uh, it's about dodging the punches and then just kind of swinging your body like a barrel in some ways. It doesn't it doesn't work as good as the wax on wax off, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Still kind of fun, though. Um, but just a couple minor nitpicks, I guess, before I get into some real major ones before we wrap up here. Were you were you frustrated that these people, these Japanese people spoke English this whole time? I understand it's for an American audience, but they would be speaking Japanese. This is true. I don't know, maybe a little bit, but yeah, they, they definitely... <laughs> Probably wouldn't be speaking English as their primary language, I would think, but I haven't been exactly to Okinawa, so I wouldn't know. I don't know. It seemed absolutely absurd. They went to a different country, and then all of a sudden, this country speaks English instead of Japanese, and they're mm -hmm. all about tradition and honor, but they're willing to speak English. I get it. It's for the audience. It just bugged me nonetheless. Yeah. But I will say the way they kind of hone in on this whole honor thing, and honor has to do with you can only preserve your honor if you kill the other person. I felt like they drew, they really were on that thing far too much. And I was a little disturbed by their willingness to commit murder just to preserve honor. And I don't know if that's the way Japanese people feel, but there wasn't a uh, very many good Japanese characters in this aside from the two women. So I kind of felt like it didn't make Japanese men at least look very good in, yeah. in their beliefs as, so far in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose um, this is trying to raise the stakes from last time, right? Last time it was about them, about them winning a tournament. This time it's to the death. Right? Uh, yeah. I can see that, you know, they're trying to just raise the stakes. They never really commit to that. Um, they never really commit to somebody ends up dying in the end. Um, kind of, I guess, a cop out, but it is also rated PG, so they can't really do a whole lot. No, they can't. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I guess... Yeah, I guess you're right. The uh, the men in the story are kind of portrayed as not great. Mr. Miyagi is probably the best example of you know people from his village, but he's also been you know kind of excommunicated for so many years. Um, Sato, I, I can see Sato as trying to fight for honor, but at the same time, he's trying to finish what um, he's trying to finish what what Miyagi did to him. Right? He wants to, in some ways, maybe. Payback or 
put to rest what happened to him so many years ago. I can get down on that, um, but he's still over the top, and them going to fight to the death is kind of over the top, too. I don't know if that's a custom. I'm not exactly in, in line. I, I don't exactly look into Okinawan culture, um, unlike, Daniel, unlike Daniel, which he just <laughs> randomly does at some point in the movie. So You know, but I got to say, I felt pretty... Uh, unsatisfied. I feel a little cheated that we didn't get a fight between Sato and Miyagi and a convenient storm comes and Miyagi saves him and that's all it took for him to change his heart. Yeah. Once again, all in the last film, all it took was Daniel kicking Johnny in the face and winning for Johnny to earn Johnny's respect. It, I, I hate this, you know, um, do X uh, type of ending where um, this was this was something that happened that's ha going on for hundreds of years where at the very end, either a God or a storm or some high power comes in to just easily save the day. It makes it a very clean, easy cop out, get out of the ending. So frustrated about that. Yeah, I, I agree. The the ending of we don't that we don't get to see Saito and Mr. Miyagi fight is kind of like, oh, why <laughs> would you do that? <laughs> yeah, kind but you know. Thing. Yeah, but it, I mean, he does fight Chosen, but that feels that feels out of place. The dance feels like a very peaceful Return of the Jedi type resolution. But then he has to fight. <laughs> he fights Chosen. And by this point, I was pretty checked out of mm -hmm. caring about it. Um, and Daniel's drum technique where he's, he's got his two cone elbows up, swinging them around. It, I was yeah. cracking up at that, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. This week does have two endings to it. Um, <laughs> one where the storm happens, and then Sato changes his mind to the fight with Chosen. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, <laughs> Sato just kind of immediately changes his mind when um, Miyagi comes and saves him. Um, and then Chosen just completely is like, "No, I'm not going to help Daniel," <laughs> and then it's disowned. It's weird that they would do this. Um, I, I I don't know. The fight with, I'll say this, the fight with Chosen, I think, really shows off, um, I guess, maybe even the um, decline in choreography from last movie. Because I felt like the last one had, you know, yeah. pretty all right choreography. But this time around, I, I really see it's not great here. Especially in this last scene, I feel like it's, it's lacking um, any kind of, like, they've really, like, they've really rehearsed this um and that this was been playing for months kind of a thing. It feels a bit sloppy than I was, I guess, anticipating. That is something I we forgot to bring up in the last film, at least I did, was I thought the fighting choreography, you usually couldn't tell when they were pulling punches, but it did feel pretty authentic that these kids knew karate and they knew how to do the right kicks and they were kind of really going at each other in some sections. So that was all very believable. Yeah, the choreography this time, um, there's not a lot of fighting in this movie. Once again, it's mostly a lot of harassment, getting punched in the groin even to escape situations, <laughs> which was kind of a weird setup and a weird thing to go along with. But um, yeah, and I'm kind of disappointed Daniel does get kind of kicked around a number of times, just saving it up so he can get the upper, literally the upper hand on chosen but um yeah it is kind of a disappointment for a movie called the karate kid yeah 
Oh, okay. I do want to bring up just the um, Miyagi's dying father real quick. Um, Cause I feel like that's really given a short shaft. It's completely overshadowed by practically everything else. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, okay. So this kind of goes along with uh, the setup for this movie. I feel like the setup is okay, I guess. Um, but it's not great, especially when you consider everything else that happens after it, because they go to Okinawa because Miyagi's father is dying, right? Well, we see the father in like two scenes <laughs> and and the second scene he dies. Um, it's completely overshadowed by the feud with the feud with Sato and the love uh, interests with Yuki. Um, I feel like this and which is unfortunate because we don't ever learn anything about Miyagi and his father. Like it's there, but what their relationship is a tiny um, bit. Okay, yeah, I guess that's true. A tiny bit. There is a line from the father. It's a line. <laughs> yeah, he he says that if I'm dreaming, if I'm dreaming, let me never wake, or if I'm dreaming, let me never wake. If I'm awake, let me never sleep. Is what he says, right? Yeah. That's about all we get between Miyagi and his father. And then in the next scene, there he dies trying to take their Sato in his hand and you know trying to get him to stop fighting. Um, I feel like this is completely overshadowed um, from the other things in the rest of this movie, which is funny because it's the setup to get this movie rolling. Yeah, you're exactly right. It is the setup to learn. And Miyagi is Mr. Exposition when they're, when he's packing for Japan after the letter. He's talking about his love, his challenge in the village. Sato is his best friend. They both learn karate from their father. We're never going to see him use that karate together. We just talked about that. And, you know, I was very disappointed because Miyagi does come and does have an endearing moment with his father. And I guess I'm okay with his dad dying in the next scene because it's kind of like all of that time that they lost together, he's not going to get back. And we do learn from Yuki that he, his father was ultimately proud of him for doing the right thing, for leaving and not fighting Sato and... So I think there is this great theme throughout this movie about um, kind of loss, just the loss of time and relationships and how all these years later, his friend is still wanting to fight to the death to reclaim honor. And Miyagi is like, that's not really what honor is all about. So they're once again, they're carrying over some really solid lessons. But um, nevertheless, the one thing that disappointed me most of all was not that he got moments with his father, but when his father um, is dying and he puts um, Sato and Miyagi's hands together and then his father just instantly dies, which felt pretty melodramatic. But um, nevertheless, there should have been played up a lot more about how the father was their connective tissue in life. I honestly would have even liked maybe a flashback. I think they could have worked that in pretty well of a pivotal moment in the two characters history, but you're right. The father is their honest to get to Japan. And once he's done, well, he's never really brought up again, which seems like a big missed up in an emotional connection between these characters. Yeah. I would have liked for them to show, like you were saying the father as the connection between these two, a little bit more than what they do. They kind of show it here, but it's, very downplayed. I would have liked to, um, maybe even, yeah, like you said, even a flashback probably would have done enough. But I would have liked that connection between between Sato and Miyagi. Um, I like that connection that they have, like I mentioned, but 
I do wish that there was more to it. Like it's there because they tell us. Um, but I, I do wish that they would have had more shown. I would do wish they they would have shown us more of that emotional attachment. We pretty much were just told it, not rather than shown it. So maybe if they had used the father to do that, in fact, maybe this would have made Sato even a more compelling compelling villain. Um, unfortunately, they don't do that though. You know, the best scene in this whole movie, I would say, is with Daniel and Miyagi, where Miyagi is watching the sunset after his father's passed and Daniel comes and some truly brilliant dialogue, some really beautiful stuff where Daniel is saying, where we learned Daniel's father died and Daniel felt guilty how he didn't spend enough time with him, but he learned he gave him the greatest gift that he was there and held his hand and told him he loved him when he died. And then you just see the tears slowly welling in Miyagi's eyes. Brilliant performance from Pat Morita. Mm. And then he cries. And there's just that bond and connection. And that's just where the scene ends. It's probably too good for this movie because the rest of this movie just can't live up to it emotionally. It's just like this diamond into rough right there. But that is just a brilliant scene within the film. I will say that I did I did really enjoy that the funeral scene where they're putting all of the um lanterns in the river and stuff yeah good music there as well good music there and some good visuals i will say don't watch it when you're sleepy though because there's kind of that whole stretch there where there's no dialogue it's very peaceful music Mm. the perfect music to fall asleep to for a (laughs) nap so i'm just saying that that is um this movie is definitely more contemplative which i think takes its cues from more of the eastern tradition Mm. Well, Alan, we seem to have been kind of in agreement, but kind of on different sides of the the perspective here on this film. So I'm very curious, what is your rating and recommendation for The Karate Kid Part 2? I think The Karate Kid Part 2 does, in some places tries, to do way more than the first one did. And in some places, I think it honestly really works. Um, I like this idea of Miyagi's beliefs being pushed to its absolute, doing being pushed to the point where he has to break his beliefs or he has to break something in order to save those around him because him not, him not going along with it is causing harm to the things that he has and the people around him. I like that a lot. I like the I like the relationship between Komiko and Daniel. Although I I do not think I don't think it's necessarily as well fleshed out as as what it could have been, but I do like it more than Ali. I think that Komiko does a little bit more in the story. I like that there's a connection between Sato and Miyagi. There I feel like there's enough here for me to get. There's more here for me to get invested because I feel like these characters, well, last time they didn't they felt like they were so hollow that I didn't find anything intriguing about them. This time around, I feel the complete opposite. I feel like now there's enough here, um, even if it isn't with the characters, there's at least enough here that at least a change, like a change in environment. There's a, there's enough here with its even its music alone that I feel more engaged this time around than I did last time. And so when it was all said and done, I actually found myself enjoying this one more than I did last time. It is by no means a perfect movie. There are some pretty weird inconsistencies they can't really decide on a main character. Um, Chosen is always around to a point where he's annoying. But I feel like I find this one to be the one that I would be most likely to return to than the last one. Now, would I give it a recommend? I can give it a very, very mild recommend. 
Um, but I think I'm still going to land on a five out of 10 um, with my score. It's not a perfect movie, but I think that even just the idea of some of the things here, even though they aren't exactly well fleshed out or well executed, the idea is intriguing to me. So I think that's why I was more accepting of some of these things. And I guess you were Corbin. The Karate Kid Part 2 is largely a retelling of the first story, albeit within a Japanese backdrop. It's nice to see Pat Morita return to his Oscar-nominated role, and Ralph Macchio comfortably returns to the lovable Daniel LaRusso. If they're going to essentially remake the first film, it's nice to see Miyagi and Daniel face new enemies together while delving further into Miyagi's past. There's a great truth to be found within this film. Never put passion before principle. A lesson we see many learn throughout the film. Those teaching moments Miyagi imparts to Daniel and others is so far the series' greatest strength. Sure, some of the fighting is fun, but oddly enough for a movie with karate in the title, it's not about the fighting, but about the discipline learned from the art of karate. The opening and closing fights are awesome to behold, but once again the storytellers have a problem with keeping my attention, despite shaving 14 minutes off the runtime compared to the previous movie. Once the duo gets to Japan, I am bored. I feel like it's fairly uneventful, especially once after the father dies, then it's like we can pick up into the real drama of the Japanese story. Gratefully, the second act has enough mayhem to hold my interest. Daniel's new love interest falls flat without any chemistry for me between the two leads, which did make me miss Elizabeth's shoe. Also, I'm disappointed our new nemesis chosen pales in comparison to Johnny. Chosen is more of a poser following in his uncle's footsteps. I miss the legitimate teenage antagonism between Johnny and Daniel. Even Sato and Miyagi's dispute isn't satisfying considering they have little conversational quips the entire film until Duex Typhoon changes Sato's heart. Ultimately, I did go into this film hoping it would top the original. If I had to pick, I would choose to watch this one first because I found it to be more engaging. That being said, The Karate Kid Part 2 is still getting 5 stars out of 10 with the mild not recommend. Interesting. This has been a, this has been a very divisive review, I suppose, between the two of us because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that we agree on, but I feel like the things that we don't agree on are, have a lot more diversity between our thoughts. Yeah, we were pretty much on different sides with a lot of this stuff. I was a little more harder on it. And, you know, I was very curious because I thought Alan very well might recommend this movie. But then again, <laughs> I saw you not recommending it. So we had the same score, but mm. you tipped. It, it was both straight up the middle for us. Yeah. Though, but yeah, for slightly different reasons, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, honestly, I would say this movie is they're both. I've given out two fives so far, which isn't good and i don't know if i've ever started a series that way <laughs> before we both we both have i guess yeah but yeah so far i've not recommended either of these movies um i'm hopeful the third one will be better i guess i guess now i'm not going in with much hope but yeah i don't know maybe it'll surprise me and this will be a it'll be a recommend i don't know but so that being said, Alan, would you pick up or pass on the Karate Kid Part Two? I'm probably gonna pass, but I, the fact that I had to give it 
any kind of thought I think leads to, I guess, why I think this, it leads to my thoughts on it. Like I had to think about, well, maybe I could pick it up and maybe I will in the future. Although I think this one's gonna be a bit hard to find unless I get a box set. Um, so not nah, probably not, but there is a possibility, I guess. The possibility of me picking up is there. And I'll, of course, pick it up once I get the Psy Film Collection someday. Yes. As for other film or TV recommendations, listeners, I recommend you go check out Back to the Future. Not just because we just reviewed it, but I got to say this movie kind of felt like Back to the Future while watching it. Um, because Marty and Daniel are strangers in a different time and it's kind of dealing with ancestry, like your legacy and chosen is very much like Biff, how they're always kind of antagonizing each other. Um, even just a lot of the vibes and setups of kind of running around the town and getting away from chosen felt like Marty kind of trying to escape from Biff. So I do feel like in a lot of ways, this movie kind of ripped off Back to the Future, which isn't a surprise because sandwiched in between part one and part two in 1985, Back to the Future came out and was a huge hit. So, of course, they would want to try and take some ideas from that, I would think. Right. So for me, I'm you You did mention this earlier in the review, which I was a bit shocked about. Um, what? First Blood Part Two. Oh, <laughs> um, that when I finished it, I was thinking of other movies I could re recommend and I was like, this one just, I don't know, there, I think it's the setting. The setting between these two movies is pretty similar. Um, so that would be why my mind immediately went to First Blood Part 2. Very different movies. First Blood Part 2 is very action-oriented, whereas this one is very not. Um, it's just very close, it's closer to a drama than it is an action movie. But the setting between the two of them is there. The tone is somewhat the same. They're both are 80s movies, so yeah. Yeah, after you watch both of those movies you recommended, we've reviewed them, so make sure to check out our review. So the question after the show is, do you like this sequel at least slightly better than the original? As mm -hmm. both Alan and I did, I know our colleagues over at Now Playing do not agree with us on this. They really think that first movie is fantastic and would definitely recommend that above this one. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, of course, we saw this movie did incredible numbers at the box office. Audiences gave it an A minus. So, of course, they're going to do a Karate Kid Part 3. And that came out almost to the day once again, two years later, Friday, June 30th, 1989, right at the end of the decade there. And um, let's see, for this third movie, Ralph Macchio is going to be 28 years old. Still, I don't know how old he's going to be in the movie but for this movie he was my age 25 it's incredible how tiny and young he looks yeah especially in the first one it was shocking he was 22 years old yeah um uh mr pat morita was 54 in this movie and he's going to be 57 in the next one. Oh man so yeah people are starting to get older this is becoming a trilogy but uh our stars are getting a bit older now yeah so it will be interesting to see if their age has anything to do with uh their role in the film listeners i don't know the first thing about part three i have no idea how in the world they're going to continue the story i'm yeah i i don't even know if they get off the island <laughs> you know they might not um they ended with the bono dance and maybe they just stayed there forever in peaceful okinawa maybe maybe we'll see 
Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listener, we will see you next week with The Karate Kid Part 3. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.